The Gist is brought to you by Indochino, creators of -of one-of-a-kind men's suits that are customized just for you. Get any premium suit for just $3.99 plus free shipping by going to Indochino.com and using the promo code GIST at checkout. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2016 from Sleet. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Pew Research Center, which I love on the one hand, you can mock them as being analogous with a bad smell. I choose not to think of Pew that way. I think of them as a laser beam. Pew, pew! And Pew has a study. For the first time in the modern era, living with parents edges out other living arrangements for 18 to 34-year-olds. And as the AP plucked out of this study, the big thing that was getting a lot of attention, nearly a third of millennials live with their parents, slightly more than the proportion who live with a spouse or partner. It's the first time that living at home has outpaced living with a spouse in this age group since the 1880s. Okay, couple things. 18 to 34, that is a huge spectrum. There are 75 million 18 to 34-year-olds. We call them millennials. We're obsessed with millennials. Who's the way? Millennials are obsessed with millennials. People older than millennials are obsessed with them. People younger than millennials tend not to care so much. So, you know, the trend lines were going to cross. It was inevitable given other big trends, the recession that hit, housing prices, the creeping up of the age of marriage. It was inevitable that we'd have more 18 to 34-year-olds living with someone other than a spouse, like, say, a parent. I mean, it's such a huge age range, though. For the 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds, anything under 25, you wouldn't expect them to live with a spouse. 18's too young to get married. I'm going to say it. The older end, sure, of course. But why wouldn't an 18 or 19-year-old live with a parent? I mean, if I take a huge age range, I could produce a study that says millions of American children cannot speak English. Yeah, all the one-year-olds and under. The New York Times, in reporting on this study, helpfully asserted about 22% of young adults, that's how they defined 18 to 34-year-olds. By the way, a 33-year-old is not a young adult. Anyway, about 22% of young adults now live in a dormitory or a prison or with a relative, like a grandparent or a sibling, compared to 13% in 1960. What? What kind of grab bag of disparity is that? With a grandparent or a... I live with my grandpa. I live on Wilkins Hall with two roommates who snore. I live in cell block D with ice pick. I don't know. Maybe dorms and prisons are similar. Tiny rooms, group showers. You can't have a hot plate. In prison, you make hooch out of Kool-Aid. In dorms, you make bongs out of apple cores. Yeah, so they're similar. But just this hodgepodge of different ways to live and calling that at all a meaningful category. It's like saying a little over 66% of people, frogs, and bats ate a fly for breakfast this morning. This includes all the frogs, all the bats, and Tim Surchuk of Lafayette, Indiana, who still thinks Fear Factor is accepting audition tapes. But it just goes to show you, millennials, they're just like you or me. If I were born 10 years earlier, or you were born whenever the hell you were born, and we were born within 16 years of ourselves, and neither of us lived at home or had a kid who lived at home. It's a good survey. On the show today, we reconvene in the spiel, the Trump anxiety hotline. But first, Moby. Need I say more? Maybe I do. It's looking back at his life, doing kinds of music, some of which people liked, some of which they didn't. I kind of like the music that people didn't like. We had a good chat. Here he is.
Christian AIDS activist, hip hop, vegan, metal, fun guy. These aren't really contradictions, but when you think about what they mean as brands, they don't have much overlap. Actually, they do, I found out by reading Moby's new memoir. It's called Porcelain. Moby's here. Hello, Moby. Hi. So I guess in this, Moby turns Bartleby. Um, hmm. It's Scrivener. That's a, yeah, that's a Melville yeah. joke. How, by the way, I got it. How, how true is it that your great, great, great grandnephew, is it definitely true or is it just true enough that we could say It's it? true according to my family, mm-hmm. keeping in mind that they lied to me about a lot of things. <laughs> so like maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I mean, my full legal name is Richard Melville Hall. Right. And Moby is a nickname I've had since birth. So I feel like if they were going to go to that much trouble to have both my like real name and my nickname be based on this relationship, at least I think they thought it was true. So I assume I'd like to work under the assumption that it's true. And there's there's something called family lore that actually is as important as truth when you really get down to it. Well, so about six years ago, I moved from New York to Los Angeles and living in L.A. has made me realize The criteria by which I evaluate a story Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the veracity of the story, unless it's a doctor. You know, like (laughs) like if the doctor says, oh, by the way, you have cancer, like you kind of want to know that that's true. But apart from that, like— Well, it's not not so much cancer as it is Parkinson's meets diphtheria. What is this, a pitch? Yeah, it's like you have have a cold, but I just wanted to (laughs) overdramatize it. That's right. In the second act, you'll find out, right? But for example, like an interesting story that turns out not to be true— it's so much better than a banal story that's 100% accurate. You're absolutely right, but this is a problem with politics because good politicians know that human beings love narrative. And so if you sell them a narrative, it's much better than the truth, right? The narrative is that the Iraqis were killing babies in incubators. The real truth is, you know, complicated Iraq politics. That is the nature of politics. For example, I will very happily support Bernie Sanders if he gets the nomination. And I feel like I'm on dangerous territory, potentially criticizing Bernie Sanders. But half of what he says is remarkable. Half of what he says is fiction. You know, break up the banks. What do you mean? Like simply like that's a wonderful headline with nothing to support it, unfortunately. Like there was that when he did that interview with the Daily News and he just they asked him that question. He was like, I I don't. He's like, you know what he was thinking was, well, I've enjoyed saying that for the last (laughs) six months, but there is actually no substance to it, which is not to criticize him because he's a politician. And to be a politician, you need to spin fiction. You need to mobilize your base. And oftentimes the base is not mobilized with nuance and complexity. They're mobilized with like very comforting headlines that actually have no truth to them. Now, do you think 18, 28, even 38-year-old Moby would be saying this? It seems to me, and I share your opinion, and I'm more in favor of Hillary than Bernie, yet as a young idealist, and you were much more idealistic than I was at similar ages, would you have been a Bernie guy, do you think? Uh, I, I mean, well, let me think. See, what I've learned as of late is that when I say in public that I will happily support whoever gets the Democratic nomination, in the eyes of Bernie supporters, that's like heresy. I know. And I – because to me, I don't care about either one of them. I don't care about Hillary. I don't care about Bernie. I care about the issues that are important to me. I care about the environment. I care about a woman's right to choose. I care about the Supreme Court. I care about education. I care about immigration. I care about foreign policy. I care about climate change. Both of them are going to do roughly the same job. So it's this cult of personality that 
doesn't interest me really much at all. Like I just want someone who's going to be smart and principled and do a relatively good job. And even back when I was like a crazy punk rocker in the early 80s, there was still a part of me that was very pragmatic. And, you know, I was a Mondale supporter when I was 19 years old. That's how... Well, he was excitement personified. (laughs) So he won uh, D.C., Minnesota, and Moby. Ronald Reagan is determined to put killer weapons in space. The Soviets will have to match us, and the arms race will rage out of control, orbiting, aiming, waiting, with a response time to fire so short, there'll be no time to wake a president. Computers will take control. On November 6th, you can take control. No weapons in space by either side. Draw the line at the heavens with Mondale. Those were, <laughs> yeah, I voted for him in Connecticut. It was the first. I remember getting my little voter card when I was 19 and voting at my local library and feeling so good that I voted for like Mondale Ferraro. No now, one else did. But <laughs> I got I've got I have to admit, I got you wrong because I always knew or, you know, knew the idea that you were a descendant of Melville and you're from Darien, Connecticut. And I put that together and I'm like, oh, here's someone who is from privilege. Oh, quite the opposite. You were one of the two poor kids from Darien, Connecticut, and your mom would do laundry and cry on other people's Mm T-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was born in Harlem and then grew up in Connecticut and Darien. And yes, the moment you say that you're from Darien, Connecticut, people assume that you are a privileged white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but I was a poor white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know, my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare till I was 18. My aunts and uncles and most of the people around me were poor artists. Uh, my aunt was a writer who also cleaned houses. My uncle is a photographer who also drives a taxi. So I just assumed when I became a musician that I would be a broke musician. And I was perfectly okay with that. So when I was 20 or 21 years old, I moved to an abandoned factory and I had no running water and no heat. I mean, I feel like this is almost like an Abe Lincoln story, but like... (laughs) Yeah, except with beats underneath it, with remixing Laura Palmer's theme, yes. Maybe that's the next (laughs) Hamilton. Yeah, Um, but I was really poor and also it seemed okay. Like I didn't... It didn't bother me that I was making $4,000 a year and squatting in an abandoned factory because I had free electricity and I could make music. And honestly, that's all I cared about. I mean, I know that might sound a little sort of disingenuous or naive at this point, but really I was just pretty happy being broke living in this abandoned factory. Now, most of the book, your relationship to music is your love of music and your love of an eclectic variety of music. But when you were young and a kid and in these punk bands, were you angry? Was music a way to vent anger? When I was playing in punk rock bands as a little teenager, we were fake angry. Like we were mad at Reagan and we were mad at nuclear war. And, you know, so we would write songs about that. But basically we were suburban punk rock kids who couldn't for the life of us get girlfriends. You know, so we were mainly just sad and confused that no one would date us. So, But every other punk rock record we listened to would have like an anti-Reagan song. So we're like, oh, we should write an anti-Reagan song even though we don't really know what he's doing. But like we know he's bad because he's Republican. So – we were – but I mean that's the thing with punk rock is I'm sure you've experienced this. It was just celebratory. Like you'd go to A7 or CBs or Great Gildersleeves and like 
the band would sound angry, but everybody was smiling and jumping off the stage, you know, stage diving and moshing. And it was like the happiest, most celebratory thing. It's just the lyrics were super angry. Like even Black Flag, you know, like they had some pretty angry songs or the Bad Brains, all again, some pretty angry songs, but like they liked to have fun. Like you'd see them perform and it was so exuberant. And like you went to the shows to scream, but it wasn't a scream of anger. It was a scream of just like frustrated celebration. But they also, when they became successful or even just successful enough to draw even a 400-person crowd, mm-hmm. that means they found their tribe. And so much of music is finding your tribe. And I think you got punished by that a little bit. Like oh, yeah. When you veered away from the music that you first got uh, famous with and when you put out Animal Rights and it was more like a punk or album, people didn't like that. They wanted the techno Moby. They wanted the the uh, uh, electronic dance Moby. Luckily, personally, there was a lot of precedent for that. Like when I was 10 years old, I started playing classical music. And then when I was 13, I discovered punk rock and tried to forget everything I knew about classical music and jazz, which broke my music teacher's heart. And then I got really involved in the punk rock world. And then I got into hip hop and dance music, which alienated my punk rock friends. And then I made a punk rock record, which alienated the dance fans. So at some point I was like, you know what? I just can't seem to make anybody happy. So why even bother to try? Do you think if you had put out Animal Rights under a different name, like the branding was a problem? People didn't know what to do with Moby doing a song with, you know, playing a guitar? Yeah. That would have been the smart thing to do from a career (laughs) perspective. It never even crossed my mind. But in hindsight, that really would have been the wise thing to do. But I think part of it is I thought that part of the job description for being a musician was to do different things. Yeah. Meaning like, like when we were growing up, David Bowie would reinvent himself. Lou Reed put out Metal Machine music. John Lennon made Revolution 9 and started the Plastic Ono Band. Joe Strummer, this punk rocker, suddenly was making dance music and hip-hop and was into reggae. So I just thought that what a musician was supposed to do was to identify different things that interested them and pursue them. And so I did that with this record, Animal Rights, and I thought at the very least maybe someone would sort of pat me on the back and say, oh... (laughs) Well, not well done, but kudos to you for trying something different. And instead, the response was just like either uninterest or sort of scathing vitriol, which was in hindsight was okay too. But then when when that record failed, it is sort of what led me to make the next record, which was Play, which which did was weird and did well. A huge, a huge hit. also confuses me why more artists or writers or musicians don't try different things. Like I'd rather fail with integrity than succeed with egregious compromise. You know, and the time there have been times in my life where I've tried to succeed with compromise and I just felt almost on a cellular level gross. Yeah, after the success of play, I had a couple of years where I like I wanted to keep things going along. Like I really enjoyed playing to audiences and I really enjoyed being able to pay the rent and getting invited to fancy parties and dating movie stars. Like it was great. Yeah. And I really didn't <laughs> want that 
to come to an end. So I made some compromises, especially on the album Hotel, like some artistic compromises that in hindsight, I went at, but I was really just sort of trying to keep things going. Right. And so Play was successful because it came right after, for a number of reasons, and it's alchemy and you can't exactly put your finger on mm-hmm. it. But I've heard you say that one of the reasons it's successful was maybe you weren't so desperately trying so hard. Yeah, I thought Play was going to be my last record. And I just assumed, here I am. I'm a bald, at the time, like, what was I, like 33-year-old musician making a record in my bedroom on cheap, cheap equipment. And I'm mainly using African-American vocals that were recorded 50 years ago. I was like, there's no way this would ever be successful. And so it was liberating. I was like, I'll just make this record and no one will listen to it. And I'll move back to Connecticut and teach community college. Last question, you know, we do have this thing, we do have this connection, it's the baldness. And my question to you is, I think you were totally shaven before that was really popular among, sure, Michael Jordan did it, um, but before you saw like a third of the guys on Wall Street with that look, are you resentful that it's become so mainstream? Well, there's certain things I don't understand. Like the reason I started shaving my head was in 1994, I started dating a woman who I'd known from the hardcore punk world, and she loved the way men looked with shaved heads. So I started shaving my head. We broke up a year later and I let my hair grow back in. And I realized during that year, a lot of my hair had just disappeared. So like, then I had, I had to shave my head. What I don't understand are when people shave their head when they have the ability to grow hair. Like every now and then they'll see someone with a shaved head, but you look closely and you realize, oh, you could grow hair. I'm like, if I could grow hair, I wouldn't shave my head. Like it's, Kind of like like if someone chooses not to drink when they're not an alcoholic. I'm like, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I would be drunk every day of my life. <laughs> That's That sounds both like a true bald guy and a true alcoholic justifying things. <laughs> Moby is the man. Porcelain is the name of a good Moby song, but also his new memoir. It's out from Penguin Press. Hey, great to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you as well. Thank you. Take care. So this is A made-to-measure suit seems like one of those things that's a luxury. You say, yeah, it'd be nice to have. It's probably impractical. I'll get by with off the rack. Or maybe you don't know how good it would look on you. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you don't even think about that just because the price is a wedge in your mind. I mean, how much do they cost? I'll tell you how much they cost. With Indochino, a made-to-measure suit, they take 14 measurements. They talk to you about your lining, your lapels, a personal monogram. All that stuff's free, by the way. All that is $399 for a premium suit that is 50% off 
at Indochino.com when you enter GIST at checkout and shipping is free. It's one of a kind. It's unique. It's less expensive than an off-the-rack suit. It's of better material than many off-the-rack suits. It will change how you feel. It will change how good you look. You will probably enjoy or not hate the process. And once the suit comes and once it really does fit, you will wind up actually liking the process. Oh, let me throw some things out there like money-back guarantee and patterns that are either crazy or fun or just very standard, very work-friendly. But they also have one with this little like hula girl on it if you want to go crazy uh, at a cocktail party. So again, I'm going to reiterate the offer. Go to Indochino.com, use the promo code GIST at checkout. You get free shipping on any premium suit for just $399. Indochino, your look, your way. And now the spiel, it's the Trump Anxiety Hotline. So as you know, on the Trump Anxiety Hotline, we take your calls. We try to allay your anxiety. Trump's ascendant in the polls. I'm sure we're going to get, oh, my God, the phones are ringing off the hook. All right, let's go to the first caller. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. This is Anastasia. I'm worried. I really am. Bernie just won't go away, and Hillary can't put him away. They're fighting, and there's all these stories and polls coming out that say that Bernie supporters, they won't even back Hillary in the general. I know this is unconventional for a Trump hotline caller, but I've even brought a clip to demonstrate this point. But among Sanders supporters, 33% say they could not see themselves voting for Clinton in November. And for Clinton, that presents a crucial challenge. Yes, thank you for bringing that clip and to put it under music. That, that really was a lot of extra effort. Thank you so much. I would very much like to address this point in a way that the media hasn't. But now, what some people in the media, most what they'll do is they'll just say, oh my God, the Bernie supporters aren't going to vote for Hillary. And then the second level of discourse is to point out, no, they will. They're just upset right now. About, I don't know, a week and a half ago, all these Trump supporters weren't going to support Trump. Now they are. The Bernie supporters will come back into the fold. Well, what if they don't? What if it's different? Here's what people should be doing. These polls are taken every election. And when things are at their nastiest, they show the same thing. Check this out. CNN 2008. According to exit polls, half of Clinton supporters in Indiana would not vote for Obama in a general election matchup with John McCain. A third of Clinton voters said they would pick McCain over Obama, while 17% said they would not vote at all. Let's go to North Carolina. Also, same story, CNN. Obama gets even less support from Clinton backers in North Carolina. Only 45% of Clinton supporters said they would vote for Obama over McCain. 38% said they would vote for McCain. Well, guess what? In the general election, who won North Carolina and who won Indiana? Two states that experts didn't even think were in play for Democrats. Obama did. And if we look at the exit polls, here's the Indiana exit polls. No matter how you voted today, do you think of yourself as a Democrat? 38% said, yes, I think of myself as a Democrat. So this is where you'll see all those disaffected Hillary partisans show up, right? A lot of them are going to be voting for McCain. Who'd you vote for? Obama, 88%. McCain, 11%. On the other side, do you think of yourself as a Republican? McCain, 86%. Obama, 13 This is how it always goes. 
upwards of 90% of the self-identified voters in one party vote for that party's candidate. The fight is of the people who don't identify themselves, namely the people who were not voting in the primaries. All right, next call. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. Trevor here. Look, I'm really, really, really worried. Have you seen the latest polls? Okay. Today, ABC, Trump up two over Hillary. Rasmussen, today, Trump up five. Today, Fox News, Trump up three. He's beating Hillary, man. How can this, how can this be happening? All right. First of all, I just want to reiterate what I said to the last caller. Oh, wait. You didn't hear the last caller. All right. Uh, it's, I guess, covered by caller confidentiality. So a lot of the strength that Trump is getting in the polls is because Hillary is still in a fight with Bernie. And so you got a lot of Bernie backers who are saying they won't vote for Hillary. That's going to be peaking right now in a couple of weeks after the race will effectively be over, after Hillary will have clinched the nomination, just like we're seeing with Trump. That's going to go away. But also, let me talk about a lot of these polls. You said the Rasmussen poll. You said the Fox News poll. I mean, that Rasmussen poll, I guess we could nitpick any one poll, but that has only 70-something percent of the voters being decided. You know, that's way too big and undecided factor and a bunch of those voters said, I'm going to vote for someone else. No, you're not because there's not going to be anyone else. And that Rasmussen poll is really weird because it shows Clinton winning less than half of the non-white vote. That Fox poll shows Trump getting 23% of the Latino vote. That's exactly what Mitt Romney got in 2012. You don't think Trump's going to do a little worse than Mitt Romney among Latinos? We could nitpick polls all day. I'm sure some of the polls that show Hillary up, and by the way, more polls still show Hillary up than show Trump up, even though the Trump ones are getting the media attention. It's, it's by a little, but you know, Huff Pollster says 79% of the simulations that they've looked at says that Hillary is winning, but just by a little bit, I'll give you that. But here's the big thing. Here's what it takes to win a phone poll. Hi, can I ask you a question about the election? Yeah, sure, I got a minute. Who are you going to vote for? Eh, Trump. Boom. Trump just won the poll. But here's what it takes to win an election. It takes a get-out-the-vote effort. It takes carpools from community centers. It takes flyers and churches. It takes pre-registration drives, right? Actual field offices, actual organization. Trump is sorely lagging in all of this. He won the primaries just based on personality and free media. Hillary sticks to the knitting. Wait, is that sexist? I don't know, but it's true in this case. She has, as bad as Trump is, she has as good as this unsexy, get out the vote, just the nuts and bolts of actually winning an election. Now, even if you put all that get out the vote stuff aside... You don't win an election by having the majority of voters vote for you. You win an election by getting the majority of electoral votes in states. So real clear politics, which says that Trump is leading by a little bit in the polls because they do a very unsophisticated average of the last few polls. Real clear politics. If you look, though, right over that number on if Trump, what's Trump's doing in the polls, they have how is Trump doing in the electoral map, Hillary 201, Trump 164. You need 270 to win. And the states they list as toss-ups, Colorado, 20% Hispanic, Arizona, 30% Hispanic, Nevada, 27% Hispanic, really unlikely Trump's going to win those states. And other sites, like there's a site 270 to win, they take the polling from individual states, and their number in the Electoral College is Clinton 194, it's close to the real clear politics average, Trump 34. He'll probably do better than 34, but 
one set of polls this time around should not worry you that much. It is a little surprising. I will admit it's a little surprising to me that even at this point, 40-something percent of Americans say, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump. That is higher. If you asked me a year ago, I would be quite shocked by that. But if you ask me pretty much whoever the Republican nominee is at this point with the Democrats still fighting, do you expect that guy to be polling, guy, to be polling in the low 40s? I would say, yeah, that makes sense. Let's not have anxiety over it. All right, next call. Hi, Trump Hotline. I don't understand how you can say there's nothing to be worried about. Because even if Hillary wins, I'm still going to be worried. It's not just the polls. What about the email server? I mean, you saying that I shouldn't have anxiety, that's like the most anxiety-producing thing that I've ever heard. Ah, I'm glad you asked this question because it gets at the very nature of the Trump anxiety hotline. I want to analogize what we do here, the good work we do here with, say, a public health crisis information center, all right? Like when the Ebola virus broke out. Is it right? Would the experts, or the Zika virus now, would the experts say you have nothing to worry about? No. In fact, I don't think that would solve your anxiety. Would the experts say you're not going to get Zika? No, I'm not saying we're not going to get Trump full stop. I would say it's unlikely, very unlikely. I would say it's 70%-ish unlikely that we're going to get Trump. I list all the factors about why we would or wouldn't get Trump. I list all the factors leading to comorbidity. That's a Zika virus and a Trump term. But I'm not telling you it can't happen. I'm not telling you it won't happen. I'm giving you the information. You might be a hypochondriac. Now, the way to calm down a hypochondriac is not to say illnesses don't exist. They do. It's also not to say you're not going to get an illness. You will. It's also not to say you're not going to die. Death is inevitable. It's to say the likelihood for these intellectual reasons, the likelihood is this thing you fear won't be happening. In that way, I hope the Trump anxiety hotline can help you. And I'd like to thank Congress for giving us the funding to do this, even if you had to defund the fight against Zika and Ebola. It's very important. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson and three water buffalo average three and a half legs each. Steve Lichtai and Toronto CN Tower are between them, the executive producer of Slate Podcast and the tallest freestanding structure in North America. Among Andy Bowers, Pontiac and Red Cloud are those who hold the title Chief of the Oglala Lakota, the Odawa, and Content Officer of Panoply Network. The gist, what we say here will live on either in your hearts, your grandma's house, or a prison. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.